0: the Marathon Medic podcast. My name's Amy and I'm a junior doctor and running coach with an interest in sports medicine. On this episode of the podcast I'm joined by Dr James Hull. James is a consultant respiratory physician with expertise in exercise related breathing problems. We're discussing asthma, hay fever, respiratory tract infections and importantly exercise induced laryngeal obstruction otherwise known as ILO and if you haven't heard of ILO before then that's definitely all the more reason to keep listening. So hi, James, thank you so much for taking the time out to to speak with me today. I was actually recommended to to look into some of your work by a colleague I met at work and was really interested particularly around um, your work with ILO, which we'll get onto later. But just to start with, could you just introduce yourself and give us a little bit bit of background about you?
1: Yeah, sure, thanks, thanks, Amy, and thanks for inviting me. So um, I'm a chest physician at the Royal Brompton Hospital And in that capacity, my main uh, work is looking after patients with asthma, but I also run a service looking at unexplained breathlessness, uh, particularly for people uh, who are struggling with breathing on exertion. And then um, as an aside, I do a dedicated sports respiratory clinic at the Institute for Sports, Exercise and Health at UCL, um, where principally I'm seeing individuals who are struggling with breathing problems and a variety of respiratory symptoms uh, during sporting activity and that's you know ranging from Olympic level athletes right down to people who are struggling with recreational sport.
0: And how did you kind of get into to that side of respiratory medicine?
1: Well I think I've always had an interest in exercise physiology even from sort of teenage years and then I went and did an undergraduate degree in exercise physiology uh, looking at uh, particularly a test called cardiopulmonary exercise test which tries to look at why people might be limited when they're exerting themselves. And then thereafter, qualified as a doctor, got interested in respiratory medicine, um, principally because I enjoy the type of colleagues who are in that specialty. And then I was put together really the sporting interest with respiratory medicine. And whilst most people would relate those two issues um, in the context of asthma and particularly exercise-induced asthma, what we found or what I certainly found over time was that I was seeing individuals who had that diagnosis And actually, we were unable to confirm the presence of other markers of asthma. And in fact, it was other mimics um, or other clinical conditions which were causing their symptoms, which I'm sure we'll come on to later on. But those were the sort of background and the interest that I got. And and more recently, I've been interested in trying to help um, very elite athletes in the UK um, in a project trying to reduce the frequency of respiratory tract infection, which is hugely uh, limiting and disabling for athletes as they try to get to competitions in top shape.
0: And in, in terms of sports, am I correct in thinking that your sport of choice is cycling? Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, I'm very interested in cycling and I love watching it and um, helping riders um, right across the world, really, to try and uh, improve their breathing and, and, and do well. I try and do a little bit of cycling myself, but um, <laughs> not enough, really. Not enough.
0: <laughs> That's the same with all of us, I think. Um, before we dive into any of the the topics that we've already kind of mentioned, the asthma um, and ILO, I think it would be useful if we just went briefly over how the lungs function and how that changes when we're doing exercise.
1: Yeah, sure. And It's a really interesting area because I, it's it's one of the areas in physiology which still presents us with a number of challenges in that you would think by now we would understand exactly what happens to trigger an increase in our ventilatory or breathing response when we start to perform any form of exertion. So, you know, simply standing up out of a chair and or starting to go up a flight of stairs, you would think by now we would understand the intricate pathways and how the physiological biofeedback uh, mechanisms allow us to control that process. But there's still a lot of unknowns and uh, there's a lot of debate about whether there is an anticipatory feed forward into allowing us to breathe more rapidly when we do those activities or whether there's some uh, feedback from the muscles and the stretch fibers within the muscles at that point of onset of exercise. During exercise itself, Generally speaking, breathing changes in order to allow some form of homeostasis of the metabolism. So when you're working hard, of course, your muscles are producing waste products. And breathing is very intricately linked to control of pH um, and carbon dioxide. So the harder you breathe, you blow away carbon dioxide and that acts to, in some form, balance any acid irregularities in the blood Um, and of course as well it's amazing that even though when you're exercising incredibly vigorously generally speaking in most people there's very little change in things like oxygen levels and so when people feel that they might be not getting enough air in or you know struggling to get enough oxygen into the system in fact generally speaking in the vast majority of people oxygen levels remain completely unchanged during exercise so there's lots of uh, mistruths about how ventilation is regulated, but the breathing systems are regulated to try and look at um, acid base and control the waste products that are coming out of the muscle. And it's, a, it's fantastically intricate and, you know, it's a fascinating system really when you spend time uh, looking at the mechanisms that have evolved over obviously many thousands of years.
0: I guess that covers exercise in, in the acute phase, so when we're actually going for a run or cycling, our respiratory rate increases. I'm just wondering over time, so endurance athletes that are maybe pushing themselves to the limit week after week, do you see any lung changes in athletes compared to the general population?
1: It's an interesting question. And and one of the things that people often say is, well, or when I see them, and then we do tests um, to look at the lung capacity, people say, well, I would expect my capacity to be greater because I regularly participate in exercise and sport. And what we find generally is that, training per se doesn't increase lung volume or the number of airways that you have or the the way the airways branch we sometimes see that if we take a cohort of athletes and we compare them to similar aged individuals um, and with similar body characteristics that lung function is greater for instance in swimmers and in rowers but that might be a selection bias based on the fact that those Type of individuals generally have slightly higher lung volumes, and it might in fact aid things like buoyancy in swimming. So, generally speaking, athletic endeavor doesn't change the absolute structural parameters of the lung. But certainly now there's a huge amount of data and publications that have shown that regularly taking exercise is really good for um, people who might have other chronic lung diseases. So, for instance, asthma, and taking part in exercise reduces the twitchiness of the airways. And in a number of studies, there's evidence that it can reduce the inflammation in the airways. So if you're exercising regularly, it's overall potentially very good for asthma control per se.
0: I guess in individuals without any chronic lung conditions who are training um, and they've, they've never had any problems with their breathing before, should they incorporate anything into their training plan to improve their lung function? Are there any exercises or breathing techniques which can be used to improve lung function?
1: So, there's a lot of debate and interest in this, and particularly um, most of the focus is on whether you can train the respiratory muscles. And people and listeners will be aware of uh, techniques such as inspiratory muscle training devices um, that have the aim of improving the musculature, which allows you to um, increase potential lung capacity but also the force of inspiration. What I would say is that there are lots of papers published in this area now. Um, there are different papers looking at clinical patient groups with disease states but also in athletic individuals and some of the studies are very encouraging in with respect to the potential benefits of these interventions. The thing I would say is that generally speaking if you look at for instance athletic performance, generally speaking the respiratory system isn't a huge limiting factor in most people that might be very different at the very elite end of the spectrum but in most people the key limiting factor when people perform vigorous exertion is the cardiovascular system and the ability to transport oxygen with the hemoglobin and of course the musculature and the the ability of muscles to extract that oxygen so i think endeavors to spend huge amounts of effort trying to increase respiratory muscle strength is probably not necessarily going to be that rewarding for most people the other things that people do i mean one thing that is very important is to make sure that the lung isn't injured or insulted or the airways don't become inflamed or irritated and so it's as much about trying to avoid things which might cause irritation and we know for instance that if people exercise in very noxious environments polluted environments or for instance cross-country skiing in very very cold dry environments that can irritate the airways and in some cases, set up a cycle of exercise-induced asthma-type changes, um, and that's particularly relevant in, as I said, potentially aquatic athletes and in winter sports athletes. And so, it's about two things really: one, being aware of what is really limiting you as a main factor when you're exercising, and two, making sure that you uh, avoid things which might upset or injure the lung.
0: And and you mentioned again there um, the, did the term exercise-induced asthma. So, what exactly is exercise-induced asthma, and how does that Differ from patients that just have a, I guess, a standard asthma diagnosis.
1: So it's interesting in that there's lots of debate about the use of terminology in this area. And one thing is clear is that exercise per se doesn't induce the clinical condition asthma, which is a, a term that's used to describe a, a distinct pathological entity. In fact, I mean, you know, if you if you think about where we are at the moment, there's a lot of debate about whether we should use the term asthma at all um, because. We're learning more and more about the different types or subgroups of conditions which sort of fall under this umbrella term asthma. We're learning particularly about the inflammatory pathways. And so there are different types of the same condition which, you know, historically have been banded under this umbrella term asthma. If we just put that aside though, physiologically, what happens when you exercise, if you've got a tendency towards, let's, you know, term it an asthma type process. When you exercise particularly very vigorously in cold, dry air, then the small airways have a tendency or propensity to narrow down, particularly when you stop that exercise. So, very classically, if we want to establish a diagnosis of exercise induced asthma, or probably better termed exercise induced bronchoconstriction, because the smaller airways are narrowing, then we would exercise someone very hard in as drier air environment as we can say for instance six to eight minutes running very very hard close to the maximum heart rate and then we measure the lung function and we're looking for changes in the parameters that uh, relate to air flow, and we're looking for a 10 percent reduction in those parameters when people stop exercise and that is reflective of the fact that the airways have narrowed down and that's a classic description of exercise induced bronchoconstriction so generally speaking those termed eia and EIB are used interchangeably. Um, and physiologists will tend to use the term exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. And what it feels like for patients or people affected by this is that uh, you know, as the test shows, really, when you go out running in a cold air environment, say you're running along a riverbank first thing in the morning, you start to feel some tightness in your chest or feeling like you can't catch your breath when you're running. And then when you stop running for sort of five to ten minutes afterwards, you feel quite uncomfortable. And then that starts to recede, or of course, uh, recedes more quickly if you've used an inhaler to open up the airways.
0: That was going to be my next question, actually. Do you find these patients can typically respond with simple management advice? So, I don't know, using a buff, for example, to make sure that they're not having direct uh, cold air hitting hitting their airway? Or do all of these patients really need to be using inhalers to manage their symptoms?
1: It's interesting, and there's, again, lots of research that have looked at different, um, what you might term, non-pharmacological approaches to this. And broadly speaking, when I see patients with this condition, I talk about both things um, at all times, and I say, look, there are non-pharmacological approaches. And as you allude to, things like wearing a buff or a snood is really important in the cold air, because we know that if you look at the pathophysiology of exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, What is happening is that we think the surface liquid um, on the very small airways is becoming dried out. And as it dries out, it then causes a cascade which releases mediators. And then as those mediators are released, they end up causing the little muscles to contract down. So if you can wear something which increases the humidity or stops that drying out or cooling process, then, you know, ipso facto, it stops the cascade of these mediators causing bronchoconstriction. And we did a study the last few years looking at a heat moisture exchange mask that people wear and we can show that exactly as we've described it stops or at least attenuates this tendency towards airway narrowing and the other things which are important from a non-pharmacological perspective are things like dietary interventions and some studies uh, certainly from the states have shown that things like fish oil supplements may help some athletes Uh, high doses of vitamin c um, alterations in the salt intake in your diet so well, the studies are not 100% definitive, what I tend to do is discuss those factors with an individual. And of course, some people would like to think about ways which don't rely on medications. Having said that, generally speaking, um, you know this responds very well to using an inhaler before exercise. And so it's probably a combination of two things which are
0: most beneficial. And just in terms of the non-pharmacological approaches, do you think there are things that actually all athletes should do? So even if you're not having breathing problems and you're heading out for a run or a cycle on a really cold day, should actually we all be just considering that? Because I'm assuming that drying process is going to affect all of our lungs, regardless if whether we suffer with bronchoconstriction or not.
1: Yeah, it's always a balance, isn't it? Um, Suggesting that people do things, um, you know, against the the sort of burden of doing that. And certainly if you're if you if you're going out running and you've got uh, a snood over your face, there are natural implications for that in terms of the comfort of uh, of your breathing, the moisture, uh, the fee- some people, the feeling of that um, limiting your, your sensations of breathing. And so, so, you know, these are always balancing acts. And I, I would say that if you haven't had any problems, and you feel okay and you're not running in a polluted environment for instance or it's not very cold and dry then there's probably not a huge amount of merit in in over-egging that the other thing to say is that people generally speaking in my experience sometimes overlook or don't consider appropriately um, management of their hay fever symptoms so when pollen season comes around it's often and i speak i speak about this myself suffering with hay fever but essentially i just wait for the hay fever <laughs> symptoms to arrive and then i think oh no you know i can't breathe through my nose anymore. Uh, my exercise is uh, you know is more uncomfortable and actually a lot of that is a, it can be anticipated by the fact that you get hay fever every year you roughly know when the pollen count is going to go up and it's far better to be in a position where you think ahead and you take um action to think about what you can do to reduce pollen exposure and then not get yourself into a situation where you're trying to rescue you know pretty bad hay fever and your exercise is miserable or affected by that and, you know, I've written a few things about strategies that people can think about to try and reduce the impact of hay fever. But if you're taking some of the treatments for hay fever, they need time to work prior to being exposed to the pollen. And so you should think about that two weeks upstream of your of your typical onset of your symptoms. And I usually say to athletes, I see, look, think about when this usually occurs and make a note in your, on your phone in your diary to alert you two to three weeks before that to say, look, this is likely to be the start of the pollen season. Um, think ahead and think about strategies to try and avoid running into those problems. And then the allied problems with breathing for people who have got allergic uh, breathing problems.
0: And for people with asthma, possibly, uh, let's say someone that's had a new diagnosis of asthma. I think often the thought process can then be that's going to limit me in terms of what exercise I can do. But earlier you alluded to the fact that actually doing regular exercise can be very helpful for patients with respiratory problems. So is there any kind of, I know it's difficult and it's very much a, an individual thing, but is there any general advice for people with asthma and how they should approach exercise?
1: Yeah. I mean, the first thing I say to anyone with asthma is that, you know, I look after a number of Olympic level athletes. And if you look historically over the data from Olympic games, it's always a shock to people to say that actually um, Olympic athletes with asthma outperform their non-asthmatic counterparts in terms of medal haul. Uh, and you know, and people with very severe asthma who are on the top end of treatment, so for instance, having biologic asthma treatments, the type of injected treatments which are affecting um, the most severe form of asthma, you know, have won medals at Olympic Games. So I think whilst people might be struggling with symptoms, I think that's an encouraging uh, message to say, look, it shouldn't hold you back. We should be able to allow you to exercise to the level you want to. And if you continue to struggle, then you do need to see someone who's got And expertise in this particular area so that you can unpick the factors which are causing you to be limited, but it shouldn't hold you back. So, that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that the simple and broad messages which we talked about just a moment ago with respect to logical, non pharmacological strategies, and that includes things like allergic triggers, thinking about warming up the airway or stopping it from becoming very cold and dry, but also things like warm up um, strategies. And interestingly, most people have the advice that if you've got asthma, you should warm up very slowly, build into it, gradually build up the intensity. Whereas, in contrast, the research evidence suggests that for at least a proportion of patients, maybe as high as 70%, it's about actually putting in your warm up some high intensity, short bursts of exercise. So you might start to jog, and then you put in a couple of um, very short, 15 to 20 seconds, very high um, intensity bursts, and then you go back to your warm up. And then you start to your normal exercise. And in a proportion of asthmatic individuals, that will trigger something called the refractory period, which means that when you go back to exercise within an hour hour period, it's far less likely that the airways are going to narrow down. And of course, then the other thing to say is that I tend to find for people who've had asthma, even if they've had it for a number of years, it's always worth reconsidering how inhalers are taken whether they're taken in the right way, whether they're taken in the right timings around the context of exercise, really simple things that actually can improve the efficacy of the delivery of the medications um, and then thus allow better control of the condition. So, you know, in many ways, it's doing the basics well, thinking about those things and then thinking about the right type of treatment as well.
0: Mm, that's uh, really interesting about the the warm-up strategies. i would never really considered or, or heard about that before, and that's quite a simple thing to implement. So moving on now to your area of interest, which is exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction or ILO, E-I-L-O. Would you mind just explaining a little bit about what that is?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So as I said earlier on, I mean, I suppose earlier in my career, I was seeing lots of individuals who'd been diagnosed with having exercise-induced asthma or bronchoconstriction. And essentially, they were getting wheezy and breathless when performing vigorous exercise. So when they're pushing it really hard, either running, cycling, swimming, They felt they can't get a breath in. Uh, They noticed a wheezy sound. Often people around them also noticed this sound. And it was attributed to really badly controlled asthma. So... People or athletes that I saw. Generally speaking, um, would consult a doctor, and they'd have an increase in their asthma treatment in the hope that suddenly this would go away, and it doesn't. And what we started to think about, and certainly was coming and emerging from Scandinavian countries, um, you know, over the last sort of ten to fifteen years, was this understanding of a condition called ILO. What that stands for is exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction. And what is happening in reality is that the area around the voice box is starting to close in when you exercise very vigorously. So what we think happens is when you're breathing very hard, you're dragging a lot of air into the back of the throat. And in people who are susceptible to this condition, that airflow and the turbulence associated with it probably sets up this cycle where some of the structures in the voice box get pulled into the airflow. And as they narrow, they limit airflow in, so people feel like they can't get enough air in. But they also cause this wheeze, which is particularly prominent on breathing in. It's, it's actually medically termed stridor. And essentially, the harder you exercise or the more vigorously you exercise, the harder that actually gets to breathe because it increases the airflow and it increases the turbulence. And then when you ease off the intensity or you stop exercising, it starts to get better. Sometimes it can take ten to twenty minutes to get better, but it but it tends to get better and continue to get better. Now, in contrast, exercise-induced asthma, as I said before, tends to cause some chest uh, tightness during running. Generally speaking, there's a, a relatively quiet wheeze, um, uh, and as I said, it often gets better gets worse when people stop exercising, and that's why we do those measurements in the post-exercise phase when we're trying to confirm the diagnosis and i can talk a lot about ilo but it's you know every week i see five to ten athletic individuals who have been misdiagnosed as having asthma often for many years they've often had inappropriate escalations in their treatment and so overall you know it's, it's just vitally important that we be able to get the message out about this condition because it can respond to other treatments and certainly doesn't need more drugs
0: How prevalent is it? And is it prevalent at a certain exercise level? So do we see this in amateur athletes or is it mainly in elite athletes?
1: So studies from Scandinavia and studies that we've done, for instance, more recently in the park run suggest it probably affects somewhere between three and 5% of adolescent or younger athletic individuals, say younger under the age of 25. So it's, it's common. And if I go and give a lecture on this condition, generally speaking at the end of the lecture, Two or three people will come down and see me at the end and say, oh, "I think I've got this condition." You know, I've always been, thought it was asthma, but I never really responded to inhalers. And you know, I, what you describe, all the videos you show, really resonate with me. So I think it's much common, uh, much more common than we think. And I think it's still there's still this unknown quantity of individuals who might have it, particularly in the UK, because there isn't uh, a great awareness. So things like this, podcast, but also social media, really important to try and disseminate the message so that people can then be aware that actually this might be, uh, might be the issue. As I said in the park run, we did a study where we recorded the sound of individuals breathing as they came into the funnel at the end of end of the park run. This is run by Ollie Price up in Leeds, um, and what we found was that the most common sound we encountered in symptomatic runners coming in was this inspiratory wheezy noise. And again, as I said, it, we estimate that probably you know five percent, and maybe as high as one in ten individuals have this as a problem, and they're often grabbing a blue inhaler, which, as I said, won't work because it's not an asthma-based process; it's a structural problem in the upper airway, which, generally speaking, doesn't respond to that type of inhaler. I'll just go back. Actually, I've, I didn't. I didn't say that you know ILO is no more likely to affect just elite athletes than it is the recreational athlete, and in fact, the vast majority of athletes I see with this condition you know, are not elite or in any way international, they are recreational young athletes, particularly doing school level sports. So school cross country or um, county level hockey, or those sorts of things are very, very commonly affected by this problem.
0: So on the topic of lack of response to inhalers, what are the things that um, are done to try and manage ILO?
1: So our frontline treatment is to use special breathing techniques. So if we think back about where we think this condition occurs, essentially we think it occurs because there's increased turbulence in the back of the throat and as the air flow increases during vigorous exercise, that sets up eddies or flow currents which then um, tend to pull these structures inwards. So we use breathing techniques that are delivered by our specialist physiotherapists that allow the way in which air enters the back of the throat to be modulated slightly and then that affects... Uh, the tendency for the structures to pull together and you know they're very successful these techniques um, about 60% of athletes 60-70% to 70% will, re- will report you know big improvements with this and, and in many cases it's entirely curative. Occasionally if that doesn't work um, uh, we, we do use some other types of pharmacological treatments to try and help reduce the sensitivity in the larynx and then if There are certain types of ILO, particularly evolving the structures above the vocal cords that are being pulled in. Occasionally, surgery can be beneficial um, for individuals who, you know, this is part of their life or their career or their professional.
0: Is there any danger associated with missing the diagnosis of, of this condition? Or is it more that if it's missed, it's then not managed and performance is affected?
1: What I would say is that I I've seen numbers of patients who have been admitted to hospital with acute ILo attacks, um and I've seen people developing ILo where they've been breathing, they've been struggling with their breathing so hard that they've passed out. So I think you know in that respect, people can develop you know relatively serious, Uh, effects from this condition but as i said usually it abates and when you start to reduce the exercise intensity so you know the treatment of ilo is basically essentially to reduce the exercise intensity and to control the breathing so if you're breathing less fast or breathing less in terms of the total ventilation it tends to start to improve so in that respect um you know missing a diagnosis. You know the main problem you have is that you've got an athletic individual who may, and in many studies, um, we've been able to see actually start to avoid exercise because they don't like the sensation. No one can give them an answer. The treatments don't work, and so the logical thing is to say, "Well, you know, I'm not enjoying that anymore, and I can do other things in my life." And that's for me a very sad thing. And of course, for young individuals who are put off sport, it potentially has huge consequences for other aspects of health, including obviously for mental health and for cardiovascular and bone health as well so you know there's, there's a lot of knock-ons from not getting the diagnosis right for people
0: and if somebody's listening to this right now and some of this is ringing true they've had a diagnosis of exercise induced asthma that doesn't respond to inhalers and some of the features that you've mentioned resonate with them what's the best next step because i'm just thinking if someone goes to their general practitioner and they're less familiar with this condition is a referral to a respiratory physician appropriate is um a more specialized sports referral uh better what would you recommend yeah it
1: depends i mean i think the first thing is to say is if the individual thinks that this might be affecting them then it's really useful for them to try and record an episode with a with a with a a video on a phone like a selfie type video of this or get the coach to do it or a family member so that then they've got some documented evidence of what the wheeze is like, and then it's most useful when they see their clinician, whoever their first point of contact is, be it a GP or if they're going to see a sports clinician, um, and they want to seek direct referral to a specialist. You know, they take the video and say, "Look, um, I think this. You know, I've listened to about this condition, or I've read about it, and I think this is relevant to me. Have a look at this video of me." And hopefully, that should trigger a thought process which says, look, this isn't or doesn't look like asthma. It looks more like ILO. And then that should trigger a cascade which gets that individual to the most appropriate source of help. Now, if people are told at that point, no, it could still be asthma. Well, I mean, then you're going to have to try and seek you know, expert opinion and, and try and think about it. And I hope that the work we do to try and promote the message will allow us to evolve this over time and people will get better. And in fact, Recently I've been involved in chairing a British Thoracic Society um, clinical statement or a guideline on respiratory care in athletes, which should come out this summer, which will have flow charts and diagnostic approaches and referral pathways, which should really help people. And that'll be, you know, open access. And then people can read that and look at look for sources of information to help in this respect. So, you know. I hope we can progress it but take a selfie and say to the person thank you i think this might be ILO," and that's the first point to try and get this kicked off for you
0: perfect thank you um and i also just wanted to briefly touch on upper respiratory tract infections obviously infections are a big topic nowadays um i think often when athletes would be that amateur athletes or more elite athletes get a, a respiratory infection a cough cold they'll continue to push through exercise because we might not feel too generally unwell. I was just wondering as a respiratory physician, what your advice is and whether actually our lungs need some rest during that time. And, and if there's any guidelines about how, or how much time you should take off.
1: Yeah, well, this is a really interesting area. And of course, it's hugely topical with respect to COVID. Um, and we've, we've been writing uh, guidelines or recommendations in respect of what exercise people should do if they get COVID infection. So if you lose your sense of smell and you've had a positive COVID test, you know, should you be stopping exercise? Is it okay to still do some light exercise? Um, clearly, people have to isolate and not be around others during a COVID infection, but people might want to do some light exercise in their own home environment. And if we think about more general infection and not just specifically about COVID, The historical advice has been that if you have symptoms above the neck, so for instance, you've got a snotty nose or you've got a bit of a sore throat, it's recommended that you reduce the intensity of exercise, but you can still partake in light exercise while you're recovering from that infection. Whereas in contrast, if you have lower respiratory tract symptoms, you've got breathlessness or you've got a productive cough or you've got some chest pain then you should completely stop exercise until those symptoms start to resolve um, or you've had a course of antibiotics for instance so the thing i would say about all of that is there is no good uh, research studies that have actually analyzed that and looked at whether that's an appropriate way um, to proceed or not the big concern that people have about athletes exercising in the context of an infection is the potential risk for developing complications and particularly, for instance, inflaming the heart muscle. Um, and old studies from uh, Scandinavia, particularly Orienteers, showed that actually there was a potential risk for certain viral infections that you might inflame the heart muscle and develop something called myocarditis. And so, you know, a, a lot of that is tied up in the historical literature, but when you actually drill down on the historical literature, it's often not being done in a particularly robust way. And actually, it's never been exposed, for instance, to our Top level of research, like a randomized control trial. So, what do I say overall? So, in the context of COVID, we've made a recommendation that if you have COVID infection, you do no exercise for 10 days. Um, And that's to allow your heart muscle to be protected, but to also potentially stop you from developing immune problems uh, while your body's fighting this, and particularly developing a lower respiratory tract complication. So, that's the recommendation that's out there. And we usually say that you should be seven days. Free of symptoms before you start to get back into graded return to exercise. If you look under my name, you type on the internet, you can look at the, the guidelines we've produced on that. With respect to more general respiratory tract symptoms, what I would say is again, if you've got if you've got a, a light cold, then I would reduce the exercise intensity, and for some people that would mean going down to sort of um, vigorous walking or light, i.e., under sixty percent of your maximum heart rate intensity on a bike. Um, for small periods of time whilst you've got the cold and then building it back up again afterwards. And and yet, although I say there's no evidence about the neck rule or the above or below neck check, um, I would say if you've got lower respiratory tract symptoms and you're coughing things up, I think it is sensible to stop exercising for at least five days at that point and then take it from there depending on how you're feeling after that. And the final thing I'll say on this is that athletes often, I think, or athletic individuals often expect just to bounce straight back from infection and so within five to seven days they expect to feel back to normal and whilst you might feel normal generally doing things and working or doing your other activities of daily living you need to be aware that often it can take six to eight weeks to get over an infection and so having some degree of management of the expectations is really important otherwise you get frankly very miserable after four weeks if you still feel you know i'm not coming back i you know i can't breathe properly it's not right there tends to take, it tends to take, especially with a pneumonia, six to eight weeks to start to feel back to normal. Um, now, clearly, if you're still very breathless at that point, you need to get a clinical review. But you just need to be aware that it can take time to come back.
0: Yeah, I think the new the new guidelines with the phased return after seven days of being symptom free from COVID is to increase your exercise over a period of five weeks. So it really is quite a significant time, even if you've had a mild infection, which many people probably expect to just kind of crack on and get on with their normal routines but we need to just appreciate that it's quite quite a big strain on the body but just it might be too early I was just wondering if there's any research that's come out about whether COVID-19 is impacting athletic performance in the long term because obviously we're suddenly getting quite a young cohort of patients that have been infected with quite a severe um, illness and I'm just wondering if there's any data to, to suggest that actually that's impacting them in the long
1: term. That's a really interesting question. And the data is emerging so fast um, in this area that undoubtedly we're going to see papers coming forward with that. Um, I've been involved with some uh, research work looking at this within uh, the Team GB and English Institute of Sports setup. So we hope to report that a bit later uh, later in the year and we're still looking at that at the moment, but it will directly address that question. But I, I think people will be aware from reading the media and look, looking at news reports that yes, there are athletes and there are a not insignificant proportion of athletes who are developing longer term manifestations, i.e. after 30 days, they still are not back to full training availability. Um, and that's impacting their overall preparation for international competition. So, it's a very relevant issue. And just because they're athletes, it doesn't mean that they appear to be entirely protected or shielded from the type of long COVID manifestations that we're seeing in the general population.
0: I have to watch that space then. Um, perfect. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of that information. I was just wondering if there's anything else you, you want to end on or, or add?
1: No, I think it's, uh, thank you for inviting me. It's nice to be able to highlight ILO particularly. Um, I encourage people to have a look or type type into the internet to look and uh, get information. There's infographics out there and um, there's lots of, athlete specific or patient specific information sheets now that will help people understand the condition and also use some of the techniques to try and help them so i just wish that you know people would be more aware of it and for people not to despair if they feel that they can't breathe when they exercise because you know there are often other explanations that have been completely overlooked and it's worth people pursuing that
0: and if people want to find out uh, more about you or, or follow more of your work um, can you just direct them about how they can find out more
1: well, I'm on uh, Twitter. I've got a website as well. So if you type my name in it, you know, these links come up and those have pieces of information and also, uh, you know, it's with links to links to different uh, information sources for people. So yeah, I'll look on there.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. So if you want to hear more from James, then as he mentioned, he's on Twitter, where his handle is breathe to win, or you can visit his website, breathe to win.co.uk. To keep up to date with podcast episodes, you can find me on Instagram by searching Marathon Medic. Or you can visit marathonmedic.com for blog posts, running routes, and session ideas. Thanks for listening.